0: We are delighted to be joined by the brilliant author, Chief Publishing Officer and Bible Publisher at Crossway, Dane Altland. Welcome to Exposit the Word, Dane.
1: Thanks, David. Great to talk with you today.
0: Dane, that is quite the bio. Expectations of this interview has just gone through the roof. I don't think I can live up to that, but I'll take it. Yeah. Just before we talk about your book, Gentle and Lowly, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became a Christian.
1: Well, I grew up in a godly family, so thankful, very thankful for a dad, and mom who loved the Bible, the gospel, the, 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 uh, the local church, and who discipled us, um, and uh, so I came into Christ. I don't really remember a time when I didn't acknowledge that Jesus was the king of everything yeah. and the savior of my own life, um, uh, uh, though I was a very squirrely uh, a sinful young man, and in many ways continue to be, yeah. <laughs> but uh, work today uh, for Crossway, as you said, been here for 10 years, love working here, very grateful for it, I love the gospel, I love preaching, teaching, uh, writing, uh, serving the church with good, solid resources, I love the Puritans, uh, live here in Wheaton with my wife and our five kids, ages 13 through four, four boys and a girl, so God has really smiled on me.
0: Ah, Amazing. What was it like growing up as a pastor's kid?
1: You know, you hear horror stories, David, (laughs) and I I can't relate. Yeah. Um, Of course, for many of my growing up years, my dad was, though he would often be preaching on a Sunday, he was teaching, his day job was teaching in a seminary at Trinity Mm -hmm. uh, outside Chicago, teaching Old Testament there. For me, that was fifth grade through the beginning of college. But yeah, for the other years of my growing up, he was pastoring. I don't remember it being anything except um, a reality that instilled in me a sense of the gravity and weightiness of the local church Mm. and the privilege, the privilege of being a shepherd in it for my dad. So um, uh, I'm not perfect. My dad's not perfect, obviously, but I, I just grew up with a wonderful sense of the Uh, the sacred privilege of having meaningful roles in the kingdom through Mm. the local church. And I'm so thankful for that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's so good. As a family, you guys have published a huge amount of books. I've got to know, are you guys competitive? Because if this was my family, (laughs) Dane, I'd be looking over my shoulder at what Gavin's up to, checking out his reviews, rankings on Amazon, and I'd be texting him whenever I overtook him. Tell me this is what you guys are doing, (laughs) Dane.
1: Um, okay, G- Gavin writes uh, books at the pace at which I read them. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, he's cranking out I think four books this year something like that. Yeah. So he's just a, a monster when it comes to reading and writing. He's way out ahead of me my brother Eric too. Who's over there near you teaching at uh, Oak Hill there in London? Yeah. Um, teaches Old Testament there. Both of them way smarter than I am. Uh, it, and um, so, you know, the Bible says in Romans 12, outdo one another in showing honor. That's the Bible's one uh, competition. Yeah. And um, so that's a fun one to take place in. And I can easily say I, I'm the middle. Eric <laughs> is older, Gavin is younger, but I look up to both of them and marvel at it actually they're two of my dearest friends
0: ah, so good how did you come to write gentle and lowly and give us an overview of what it's all about
1: mm-hmm. well i was put on to an old dead guy named thomas goodwin mm who died, who was born in 1600, died in 1679, uh, an English Puritan. I was put on to him by Mike Reeves, and um, uh, Mike uh, pointed me in his direction through some online an online article that Mike had done. And I said, wow, uh, it, it, Mike had been writing about Goodwin's book, The Heart of Christ, which is a little black Puritan paperback the Banner of Truth publishes. And I got a hold of that short little book and read through that, David, in 2013, I think, and I still have not picked myself up off the ground. Mm. That book walked me into, Thomas Goodwin coached me into something about the Lord Jesus, which though I had been walking with the Lord for 35 years, something like that, Mm. and had preached a lot of sermons and written other books and working in nonprofit Christian ministry and so on, I didn't realize that there is something about Jesus Christ, his own deepest heart, that is there in the Scripture and is in continuity with the Old Testament teachings about who God is that has to do with his heart being drawn out most strongly to us in, not once we get over, our sins and the anguish of our life. Mm. And Goodwin helped me to see that from the Scripture— And uh, so my book, Gentle and Lowly, Picking Up on the Words of Jesus in Matthew 11, is simply just trying to say, hey, guys, here's what I learned in my 30s, reading Goodwin and Sibs and Bunyan and Warfield and some others um, and in the scripture most fundamentally. And it's just an attempt to re-say what those guys were saying, but which we're not saying today.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, So true. What do you think is the biggest misconception Christians had about the heart of, of Jesus?
1: Wow. Well, I don't think we actually think in the categories of his heart much at all in the first place. I think, you know, I I think back to my seminary training, which was outstanding. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I don't wish I had gone anywhere else. And I had classes on the person of Christ and I had classes on the work of Christ. I never had a class on the heart of Christ. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, maybe some Christians have a lot of pre-misunderstandings you know, misunderstandings about Christ's heart. I think most of us just aren't even thinking about it. It's not on our radar. We yeah. think of Jesus Christ as being radiantly, resplendently, gloriously up in heaven, far transcendent, the king of all. Revelation 1, his face is like a, a the shining sun. He has a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. His feet are like burnished bronze and so on. But actually, he is also, even today, a man. And... He himself claimed—my dad pointed out to me something Spurgeon had pointed out to him, which is Jesus' own claim, the only place he ever spoke about his own heart in Matthew 11. He didn't say, I am resplendent and glorious in heart. He didn't say, I am even something like loving and joyous in heart, David. Mm-hmm. He said his own claim yeah. is that he is gentle gentle. And lowly in heart. That's not one claim among many that he makes about his own heart. It's the fundamental claim he makes. So letting him set the terms, not Thomas Goodwin or me or anyone else, but letting Jesus himself say, what is his own deepest heart? That's an astonishing claim. And we remember the heart. In the Bible, Old Testament and new is nothing peripheral or frothy mm. to our personhood. It is the very animating core. It is our motivation headquarters. It's what get, get, gets us out of bed in the morning. It's why we do what we do. Yeah. And Jesus's heart is gentleness and lowliness. That's just an astounding claim. And that demands a book.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What does it mean to be gentle and lowly?
1: I think the two words and concepts as they're given to us in the Scripture, David, are yeah. overlapping, yeah. Um, but they are distinct. Gentle. Wow. He is gentle. He is um, He's not rough with us. He's not at an instinct level exasperated with us. He does not hold us at arm's length. He does not reach out and touch us and, like us touching a slug, immediately retracts and withdraws because of how disgusting we are. He is um, open and accommodating to us. He deals tenderly with us. He deals um, sweetly, Jonathan Edwards would say, with us. He is gentle with us and he is lowly now that's a word that actually elsewhere in the new testament christos is translated humble
0: yeah this
1: is a this is an amazing thing he is lowly in heart he is yes. humble in heart well what does jesus christ the risen and exalted and ascended lord of the universe have to be humble about yeah. well the point that he's making is he is the most accessible and accommodating and approachable person in the universe there is no you don't have to take a ticket and get in line you don't have to get work your way through security to get to him Mm -hmm. you don't have to um there's no prerequisites like you can't take latin 201 until you take latin 101 Mm -hmm. there's no prerequisite he is completely open he's lowly in heart it's the opposite of having to approach a dignitary politically Mm -hmm. today where you have to get through all this red tape and bureaucracy he's completely open that's amazing because he's the one he is the revelation one christ he is the one who if anyone in the universe should have a lot of security he should
0: yeah Yeah. (laughs)
1: but he says his heart is gentle and lowly so this is just deeply consoling
0: yeah we should be reminding each other of these truths every day shouldn't we it's just absolutely incredible yeah you can so see that the puritans have had a huge influence on you whilst you were writing this book i'm interested when did you first come into contact with the puritans and also how have you grown in your, your knowledge of them Oh, wow. Well, I, re-
1: I remember in the uh, 15 years ago in seminary, brother, going down into the the basement of Buswell Library, a Covenant Theological Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri, on a quest to find John Owen's Death of Death in the Death of Christ, yeah. because I wanted to settle once and for all the L in tulip
0: and figure out am I a Calvinist or not. Yeah. And so I went down and found that book, and
1: I didn't read a word of that book because I was convinced by J.I. Packer's introduction. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) And I might have have perused Owen's work a little bit there, but I was totally put off and intimidated. I did not know what he was
0: talking about.
1: But, you know, since then, I've really fallen in love with the Puritans, not because they are so brilliant, though they are, not because they wrote so much, though they did, not because they were so faithful in in the midst of uh, oppression and persecution, though they were, but because they understood who God is most deeply in grace, mercy, and love for straggling sinners like me. Mm. And they understood, David, they understand how our hearts work. Yeah. Sometimes you read theology by, by uh, brilliant people, and you just get a sense, they don't really understand my daily s- strugglings. Yeah. And the Puritans did. So when I read the Puritans, what I feel like is happening is I have a friend who's nestling up next to me, putting his arm around me, and saying, hey, Dane, Here's your heart in one hand. Here's the Bible in the other. Let me show you how to put the two together for actual help. Yeah. And so I just have loved the Puritans, especially Goodwin, but also John Bunyan, yeah. Bunyan, uh, Richard Sibs, And yes, I've even begun to enjoy Owen a little bit.
0: <laughs> That's so good. In case anybody's listening and, and not familiar with, you know, who the Puritans wore, just give us a real mm-hmm. quick overview of, of who they actually wore.
1: But yeah. They were English, faithful, reformed heirs of the Reformation of the 15th century though they were mainly 16th century mm. think 1560 to 1660 is roughly the uh, the century of the Puritans mm. they were uh, pastors uh, they were often exiled to the Netherlands but they were pastors of England Southern England uh, trained often at Oxford and Cambridge uh, they were a band of brothers they loved to, to take a single verse in the Bible that they were entranced with and write a single book on that verse and ring it dry yeah uh they were not they are not hard to read mainly dissertations written by 28 year olds today are hard to read about them
0: yeah but the
1: puritans themselves are very open and accessible most of what you pick up it might be the works of john flavel or the works of john bunyan but all it is is sermons yeah we're reading their sermons to farmers and merchants and lawyers and everyday people and um so uh the puritans are really worth getting familiar with
0: yeah so good does the level or quantity of our sins change how gently christ deals with us
1: oh what a profound question (laughs) Uh, i would say no asterisk and following your eyes down to the asterisk at the bottom of the page (laughs) in fact if jesus is gentle and lowly in heart and if jesus is the embodiment of the kind of god who talks about his own heart his own forgive me but the text often says his own bowels in Mm -hmm. the old testament Mm -hmm. um such as in places like jeremiah 30 to 33 or hosea 11 or several places in the latter half of isaiah or exodus 34 6 and 7 actually i think we can make a biblical case that jesus's heart is drawn out all the more to us when our sinning is increasing. I say that very cautiously and carefully. What I am not saying, my old uh, seminary professor, Jack Collins, would often say in class, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that Jesus is pleased when we sin more. It grieves his heart because he knows it's uh, creating walls of communion, a wall in our communion with him, and it's sending us down into misery. But Just as, Goodwin would say, just as when a father sees his child with, and I'm quoting Goodwin, a loathsome disease, Mm -hmm. that father's heart goes out, is drawn out to his child all the more when that child is afflicted with a disease and then goodwin says our sin if anything is a disease and sickness to us it doesn't mean we're not culpable but if anything is a, a loathsome affliction to us it's our sin and goodwin says the heart of christ and the heart of the father is drawn out it's strengthened all the more in fact towards us in that and i think we understand that those of us who have our daughters and sons, we know when we see our son or daughter sinning, mm-hmm. being foolish, There's, we're sad, we discipline them, we might punish them there's consequences but also at a deeper level at a heart level our heart is drawn out all the more to them in longing in yearning and I think that's true of the father according to the scripture
0: yeah so good Um, building on that Dane because as Christians we can so easily begin to think that Jesus is drawn to the best bits of our lives and runs away from those deepest darkest parts but you've written so clearly in this book that that kind of thinking is upside down just build on that for us Dane
1: that's so true. And I, I think we, the New Testament bears out that Jesus is, that we, we don't work our way up to him. We yep. collapse our way down to him. Yep. Look at him in the four Gospels. Who did he love to hang out with? He loved to hang out with the destitute, the mm-hmm. sidelined, the sinful, the bereaved, the tearful, the, um, the outcast. Apparently, as he walked around, as love himself, uh, Bunyan says, or Goodwin said, Christ is love covered over in flesh. Mm. As love walked around on two legs, where did he love to go? Who did he love to eat with and hang out with? It was those who were low. Yeah. Not, not, he didn't skim off the top two or three percent of humanity who were most impressive, most obedient, and most upright. Mm. He went to the opposite ones. Mm. So then in, we get to the, the epistles of the New Testament, and we see the apostle Paul, for example, saying things like, God is, as proven in Christ, Ephesians 2, rich in mercy. Yeah. So th- this is—God God is not middle class in mercy. He loves to dispense his heart's mercy, the grace of the gospel, out to those—to the lowest, not the highest, but the lowest— um Flavel said, just as God did not choose you when you were high, he will not now forsake you when you are low. And Flavel goes on to say, in fact, he's drawn to you yeah. when you are low. So yeah. uh, that, that's a great consolation.
0: Yeah, sure. When we sin or when we're in a dry season, it's really easy for us to forget that and slip into a mindset that makes us think that God is further away than ever. And it almost makes us think that we have to somehow work our way to get back into a relationship with him. Tell us why that's so wrong.
1: Oh, it, it is profoundly wrong. And I find myself all, all the time following into that way of thinking, yeah. you know, okay, I've worked my way out of his favor, we yeah. feel, yeah. and therefore, how am I now going to work my way back in? Now, why do we do that? We do that because that's how we treat other people. When we try to self atone in that way and try to feel badly long enough or obey better enough long enough for us to get back into God's good graces, so we think, we're doing that because we've created a God in our own image. It's not the God of the Bible. It's how we treat other people. We treat people in a tit for tat law rather than grace kind of way. And we simply project that onto God. It's way down deep inside of us. We deeply, as fallen people, we deeply, resist a God who um, for whom we might take a thousand steps away from him but in repentance and faith turning around it's one step back towards him and we're fully embraced yet again Um, it's we have an inveterate tendency to uh, to stiff arm A God like that Because it feels like A moral free for all It feels like uh, A moral chaos But in fact In the economy of the gospel Where Christ took our place And we are washed clean Invincibly Once and for all mm-hmm. For those who are God's children mm-hmm. It is All we have to do Is turn back to him again yeah. Not walk a thousand steps back To him Turn back And he embraces us again So this is something We have to As you said earlier brother Keep telling each other Because we have to Beat it into our heads as Luther said, we'd so deeply resist it.
0: Yeah, so good. Your book is such an encouragement for us to lower the Christian mask that we can so easily put on because we can also slip into another mindset that Christ died for our sins up until the point when we become saved. And then after that, we can only make these small little mistakes. Tell us again why that's not true. And Jesus's blood covers all of our sins You know that we make for the rest of our lives.
1: Oh, my goodness. If that isn't true, then I quit. Yeah. <laughs> I can't I can't be a Christian. Yeah. If being a Christian means that when you are regenerated, when you're born again, when you're converted, when you are first justified, yeah. that at that point God now gives you a blank slate and a fresh start. Mm. If that's all it is, forget it. I'm out. Yeah. Because I, I uh, the sins that bother me most, David, are not the sins before I was a believer. Maybe that's, uh, you know, everyone has their own faith journey. Yeah. For me, it's the sins. After I've become a believer, that are most yeah. troubling to my conscience. Yeah. Why? Because now I'm now I, I'm sinning against light. The yeah. Puritans would say I'm. I know better. I have the Holy Spirit within me, who is grieved by that, who convicts me, who who um, who who is sad with me when I do that. Um, and so it is not just my pre-conversion, but my post-conversion sins that are taken care of in the death and resurrection of Christ. Oh, and here's the glorious thing. Mm -hmm. The New Testament teaches, and we don't talk much about this today, but in Hebrews 7, Romans 8, 1 John 2, the the New Testament teaches that we have a present advocate or intercessor on our behalf. We did not have an intercessor before we were believers. Mm -hmm. But now that we have come into Christ, our elder brother is interceding for us, It says, uh, to the uttermost in Hebrews 7. Mm -hmm. And that's such a glory because I'm a to the uttermost sinner. But he is interceding, Hebrews 7, 25, to the uttermost. So right now—now, what what does that mean? Does that mean that somehow his atoning work 2,000 years ago wasn't enough, and he got—Christ now has to supplement it by interceding? No, his atoning work was perfectly satisfying. All Jesus is doing right now in the courts of heaven before the Father with the angels looking on is pressing refresh on that in heaven. He is applying— moment by moment in heaven, what he accomplished 2,000 years ago. And that's a glory that's so comforting. And uh, nor does this mean that the Father— somehow needs to be persuaded as if the son and the spirit are real eager for me to be washed in fresh forgiveness but the father's Mm. a bit more reluctant not Mm. at all Mm. the father is john 17 says the father himself loves you so the father son and spirit are totally in solidarity with one another if i can speak in that way in their love for us but in the way that the persons of the trinity worked out our salvation uh christ is the one who accomplished it so he's the one saying to the father father look at these blood-bought brothers and sisters of mine your own children would you not love once more moment but in this very moment even as they are a sinning uh, goodwin says yeah to forgive them afresh and the father says there's nothing i'd rather do
0: yeah so good The way we think about our relationship with Jesus and his heart has a huge impact on how we see our assurance of salvation. Tell us about that, Dane.
1: Mm. Well, it's it's awful to go through our Christian life, isn't it, David? And we feel like we are moving in and out yeah. of certainty as to our status before God mm-hmm. and His heart for us. And I think one one way that the heart of Christ helps us in the direction of assurance, as you've just asked, is that we know at one level objectively, that the, the cross of Christ and his triumphant resurrection forgives us in the, at the level of justification, at mm-hmm. the level of uh, washing, at the level of cleansing, objectively, 100% black and white. Mm-hmm. But if, if Christ, if God uh, forgives me and justifies me objectively, but he's a little bit frustrated about it, if he's still kind of holding me at arm's length and at a relational level, at a heart level, he's sort of putting up with me despite having fully justified me, then that really puts assurance on rocky ground because it's a matter of how God himself feels towards me. Yeah. But if, if I can take the twin blessings of the objective and the subjective, the atoning work of Christ and the, the merciful heart of Christ, and have both of those fully mine, Um, according to scripture and be reminded of it afresh day by day, hear it in the preaching of the word and in the sacrament and pass it on to others in Christian fellowship throughout the weekend on Sunday. I think that's a very powerful, it has been in my life, a very powerful tandem or duo twin set of blessings from the scripture to help me have assurance.
0: Yeah, so good. What does Christ's intercession for his people reveal about his heart?
1: Mm. it reveals that he did not do something that he was very happy to do 2,000 years ago, but now he's cooled off. It reveals that he didn't really love us back then. (laughs) John 13, one having loved his own, he loved them to the end, that means up to the cross, and then his love for 2,000 years has been petering out. Um, No, rather, his present daily intercession, that is, the work that he is doing now what is jesus doing now uh, his intercession for us shows us that uh, that his love never wanes it does not ebb it is not dependent on anything we do or don't do it is not um, running like a, a gas can uh, engine running out of gasoline it's not uh, like me running out of energy it's nothing like that uh, his love is strong full. it's high octane it's industrial strength and never ebbing we know that because he continues to intercede seed for us so that is that's the glorious proof of his undying
0: love yeah so good just like if we were to discuss one aspect of mine or your personality we can easily distort that person's character and end up painting a little bit of the caricature of that person how do we reconcile the parts of the bible where we read about the wrath of god and also a following question is the father's disposition towards his people different from the son's
1: Mm, not at all no the father and the son are totally in sync with regard to how they feel about us so there's a wonderful place in volume one of flavel's works john flavel where he creates a um a sort of uh, a speculative imaginary but biblically informed conversation between the father and the son yeah. and it's the the father saying you know uh, oh my son what am i to do about all these uh, sinful people and the son says father let me stand in for them let me bear their reproach and there's just a heartful moving conversation dialogue the father says but my son if you bear their uh, reproach shame and guilt then i will not spare you anything and the, the son says father nevertheless it is my deepest desire to take that upon myself like this and it, it's not as if um we have Uh, An angry father, though there is anger in God, Mm -hmm. and I do not wish to say there isn't, Mm -hmm. but it's not as if we have the father who is angry in a different way and has a different disposition than the son does. It's simply that the father ordains salvation, the son accomplishes salvation, and the spirit applies it. So they have distinct roles in the economy of the gospel. But, you know, David, even in Matthew 11, so no, the Father and the Son are totally in sync. Yeah. But even in Matthew 11, to answer the question, hey, Dan, aren't you just extracting one side of Jesus and neglecting others? I mean, don't we need to appreciate that there is, uh, Jesus is a multi-dimensional Christ? I would say, oh, yes, absolutely. Even there in Matthew 11, Uh, In the paragraph before Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart, he's denouncing cities where he had been doing miracles and they didn't repent. And he's saying, you know, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. You know, if these miracles have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago and you haven't done so. So pronouncing a woe is is pronouncing a curse. It's saying you are on the path to judgment, condemnation and hell if you don't repent. This is not a mushy and frothy Christ. Yeah. But it, but it is to say that nowhere in the Scripture are we told that Christ's heart is wrath. Nowhere are we told that the animating center, what the animating center to Him, is wrath. Mm-hmm. Rather, it is according to his, what He says, uh, love. It is, it is gentleness and lowliness, and that's in accord with the whole biblical testimony. It's not as if in the Old Testament, God's heart is wrath, yeah. but in the New Testament, yeah. his heart is gentle. Well, no. Yeah. I mean, he says things like in Lamentations 3, yeah. he says God does not—he uh, says he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Even his affliction, the judgment coming on God's people, Mm. the exile that is lamented in Lamentations 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 is not from God's deepest heart. And so this is a consistent whole Bible testimony.
0: Yeah, so good. That's really helpful, Dane. How can parents teach and model the heart of Christ to their children?
1: Mm. Well, I wish I did it better myself. Um, I I think that we can, um, number one, ourselves as parents commune with the father, son and spirit Mm -hmm. and our most fundamentally, the way we're going to be parents who demonstrate this isn't by thinking about our parenting, but by but by our own heavenly parent, our own heavenly father and get drink down, absorb let's sink in be amazed at wonder at his own gentle and lowly heart christ's own heart towards us i mean if i do that if if that is coming in the front door of my mind Mm -hmm. what could come in the back door of my behavior but gentleness and lowliness so um i want to drink that down daily myself um and then i think we just want to be i mean when my kids were were one and two They had no mental understanding of God. In a sense, his mother and I were God to him. We were the supreme authority to him. Mm. And as we were loving on, being doting on, uh, being being, um, uh, embracing of our little ones at a very young age, we were giving – we were shaping their little brains to prepare the way when they're 18 and 30 and old people themselves for who God is. We were shaping them in that way. And now as I have kids going into their teenage years, I am just, your Your question is a reminder to me, I need to do this, what mm-hmm. they mainly need. Here's what I want my kids to do. I want them to leave the house at age 18 mm-hmm. and never be able to to abandon Jesus because they have had instilled in them a sense that his own heart for them is gentle. If they mainly are leaving the house thinking that they have a taskmaster, that they have someone they need to who's who's um, snapping the whip. Yeah. Well, who wants to follow a Christ like that? Who yeah. wouldn't leave the church yeah. when they go off to, to to school outside of the house? So I just I want them to smell what jesus is like by being in our home and sometimes david that's going to mean i screw up and i go to them uh, unlike jesus does to me i screw up and i go to them and i have to ask them to forgive me um but that itself is a picture of gentleness
0: yeah so good Dane, why is this book important for us today and are you surprised by how well received it has been
1: well i think i do think it's an important book if i may be so audacious to say (laughs) that because i don't hear or see much else being said along these lines in modern uh books and by books and and uh, tracks and conferences and uh, events and preaching and sermons and writing not much there are a few but so i think it's it's a, a gap that we needed to step into and help empower believers to see this deepest truth about jesus um i i confess i am a little surprised Uh, and even overwhelmed at the response to the book. At the same time, it makes sense to me, brother, because I myself and I think other believers are so hungry and thirsty to know, okay, what does he really think? Actually, how does the Lord Jesus actually feel about me as I go through my day, up and down, failing and faltering, stumbling and struggling my way through life? I need to know, I need to know that he is moving towards me. In love, and that I'm not depleting his love, and which is one day going to run out towards me. I just have to know this. Yeah. Um, I have to know I'm not on a treadmill. Um, and so I think that that is finding a home in the hearts of readers. For that, I rejoice and I bless the Lord. Yeah.
0: This might be the most ridiculous question ever given to an Altland but are you working on any new books at the moment? <laughs> I just, I
1: you got a book brother actually i just uh, sent it in a book on growing in christ yeah and uh, so it's going to bu- a book on sanctification a book uh. on how do we actually get traction in our Christian life, okay? Yeah. We're, we're here, here we are, we're moving through life, and we feel stalled out, we feel plateaued. We feel like sometimes the Christian life is one step forward and three steps backward. Yeah. Um, how do we grow up in every way into him who is the head, Ephesians 4? And so uh, this is a book that is going to seek to give every ordinary believer some guidance and counsel in that. Uh, the title is Deeper, subtitle, real change for real sinners as opposed to um behavioral change for theoretical sinners and so that'll uh lord willing be published next year
0: ah, excellent well, we'll look forward to that dane dane thank you so much for your time today and also for writing this amazing book it, you know really encouraging it's really helped me as well really really blessed by it thank you so much
1: david a joy to speak with you thank you so much brother god bless you
0: oh thank you dane before you go what is the best way for people to get in touch with you
1: uh probably via twitter yeah uh, uh, at dane ortland would would be one very quick and easy public way and um uh, joy to interact with people in that way
0: okay excellent well i'll put the link to your uh, twitter account in the description below and also a link to the book as well dane once again thank you so much for your time brother
1: You're most welcome, David. Joy to speak with you. Thank you.